The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Let's turn to the book of Ephesians, where we're continuing, almost concluding our study of this book. One more sermon after this, Ephesians chapter 6, at verse 14. Ephesians 6, at verse 14, Pastor York began our study of the spiritual warfare text here in Ephesians 6. A fitting conclusion to this book, when you think about the emphasis throughout Ephesians on the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms, and certainly these are things that the believers at Ephesus, young believers at Ephesus filled with a, in a city filled with idolatries, uh, certainly wanted to understand correctly. And so when Paul comes to speak about spiritual warfare, there's no s- surprise that this is a very important matter for us. Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 14. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. We'll stop there, and next week the final sermon will be on the matter of spiritual warfare and prayer. This week we're considering the armor of God. You hear them as I read them in verses 14 to 17. The other year we visited a visited a museum of fine arts in Boston, and one of the displays on exhibit was a Japanese samurai armor display. The armor was made of various carefully crafted materials, not metal, but still very strong materials, armor that covered the head and the body and the arms and the feet and the legs. And the display uh, explanation told how Generation to generation, from father to son, how this armor was highly prized and handed down father to son. And you can imagine a samurai warrior on special occasions when he was called to put on his armor, whether it was some kind of a ceremonial occasion or possibly a call to to war of some kind. You can imagine, as he put this armor on, how he explained it to his son, and you can imagine how boys are, that probably by the age of six or so, every boy knew all there was to know about his father's armor and how to hook it up and how it worked. That's something that a young boy would have liked. And you can imagine him explaining to his son every function and every secret about the use of that armor with the son listening and soaking it in until finally the day would come for his son to take his father's place and to put on the armor 
as a samurai knight. Well, this passage tells us, as we began to see last week, that the Christian is engaged in a great struggle. We're all engaged in spiritual warfare. A struggle that we're told is not against flesh and blood, we're told in verse 12, but it's against spiritual powers and forces. We fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And just like that son becoming a samurai knight and taking up his father's armor, so the child of God must learn to be strong in the Lord and to put on the full armor of God. So we want to look at the armor this evening, the various parts of it. Before we get into each part, consider that overall, um, we must remember that putting on the armor of God consists essentially of putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. We could sum it all up in that way. In fact, in Romans chapter 13, at verse 11, we read this. Besides this, you know the time uh, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Here's that same metaphor, armor. Then the next verse says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul summarizes the armor of God there as putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. So putting on the armor of God is a very Christ-centered activity, we might say. In doing that, in putting on the armor of God, we're looking to Jesus Christ anew. We are confessing him as our strength. We are trusting in his lordship over our lives. We are acknowledging him as the great captain and high priest and shepherd of our souls. Jesus Christ, you see, is at the heart of the armor of God. And let me also, before we get into the various pieces of the armor, just remind us to be thinking about the question, where are you fighting spiritual battles this week? We are all engaged in spiritual warfare in a daily kind of way. What is the arena that you will be fighting in this week? Maybe a special area of temptation in your life. Maybe it's discouragement or depression. Maybe it has to do with a lack of assurance or struggling with guilt or having a sense of God's love that seems to have grown dim in your life. Or maybe all seems to be well and things are going very well and you're tempted to forget the Lord. Maybe it's that you're being called to persevere in a long, drawn-out, seemingly never-ending trial, some kind of hardship. Or you're involved in a situation concerning a difficult relationship in your life. Maybe you feel, feel weighed down by some harsh realities of life, or you're lonely, or fearful, or anxious, or angry, or brokenhearted, or resentful. And maybe it is you're growing weary of waiting on the Lord or waiting for him to do something in your life. 
whatever your circumstances might be. Maybe you've been coasting spiritually and you've been trying to live today on yesterday's grace and not actively looking to the Lord. Wherever you are this evening, you know that you will be engaged in spiritual warfare this week. And whether you know that or not, whether you understand it or not, whether you fight that warfare or not, and if you don't fight, you know that you will surely be defeated in some way spiritually. And so consider as we go through the pieces of the armor here, I'm going to quickly try to go through all six of them to think about how this especially applies to you this week. The first is the belt of truth in verse 14. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. The belt was that leather belt that the soldier wrapped around his waist to gird his loins, to gird his waist. And if he had garments flowing in any kind of way uh, that stopped him from running or marching or fighting, then he would tuck the excess material in his leather belt. We would maybe use the, the phrase, roll up the shirt sleeves of your mind. Take the belt of truth. That's the first thing a soldier would do in preparing for action. Obviously, it's necessary for the soldier to be unencumbered in that way and for his hands to be free to hold the sword and the shield. And Paul compares this belt to truth. It could, it could mean uh, the belt of truth with the objective sense, the word of God, or with the subjective sense, truthfulness or knowledge and belief of the truth. And it could be that both the objective and subjective sense of the genitive construction there are in view. That, yes, it's the objective truth of God's word, but take up the belt of truth in the sense that you must subjectively experience it. It must be believed and known. You must be convinced of the truthfulness of the word of God. And I believe that there's a difference here between the word of God as truth here and in verse 17, when it talks about take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the, which is the Word of God. There, I think it's more in view, Scripture in its particular verses. But here, the whole idea of the truth of God as a whole, the doctrines of Christianity, the faith once delivered to the saints, truth in that sense is absolutely first and foremost. Successful spiritual warfare begins with fixing Christianity's great doctrines firmly in our minds. We must believe and hold to the truth of God. It's interesting that in 1 Peter 5, Peter says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, and there we have spiritual warfare again, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith The faith there is synonymous. It's equivalent to the truth, the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Peter would agree with this idea of take up the belt of truth, the very first thing. Notice there's this active sense to it. You're to gird up, you're to take up the belt of truth. It's something that the Christian must do. It's not done to him or her. We must have a settled conviction in regard to the truth. We must master it and be mastered by it. It must govern our whole attitude. In John chapter 8, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my 
teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's the same idea. John 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith, meaning the faith as the doctrine of what Christianity holds to. So to prepare ourselves for Satan's onslaughts, we must have a deep and settled conviction with regard to the truth. This is foundational. You know, there are a lot of virtual reality games. You can play video games on your iPhone or on a video game player. And I've seen, uh, I haven't actually personally seen it, but I've seen and read about those visors. You can put on, that you could have some kind of a virtual reality in front of your mind. And just think, what if someone put one of those on you when you were asleep and you woke up and you got out of bed and you thought you were, you know, you thought you were in the Rocky Mountains and you thought there was a waterfalls right there, you know, and and this whole alternate reality was flooding into your mind. It'd be hard to function, wouldn't it? Of course, your hand would go to your eyes, I'm sure, and you'd figure out pretty fast. But, you know, People all the time are living by alternate realities, other kind of virtual realities about what is true in the world. Putting on the belt of truth means that our only authority is the objective truth of Scripture. That's our ultimate authority, the truth of God's written word. But in the place of that, people set up all kinds of other alternative realities, all the kinds of human systems and human reasonings which are not subjected to the Word of God by which they interpret their world, and they live in light of that. Or they might set up their emotions, their feelings, as the ultimate way to judge right and wrong. So you hear it all the time, you know, look to your heart to know what to do. You know, the ultimate authority is what you might feel. Or people set up ultimate false religions and cults, doctrines and traditions that are not based on the Word of God. And they are very powerful. When you you think about how people get up, caught up into false religions, it's a very powerful tendency. In contrast to that, in the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in, if we have submitted our lives to Jesus Christ, we have said to him, We believe that you are the truth, and every other competing authority must be cast away. It must be taken from our eyes, just like one of those virtual reality visors, and cast down. And we must take up the belt of truth, which means that we sincerely desire to know and embrace the truth, and to expose ourselves to God's truth, and to humbly ask God to give us a heartfelt conviction of the truth, and then to constantly remind ourselves of the truth. We need to preach to ourselves and talk to ourselves to take up the belt of truth. And you think, as we've studied through this book of Ephesians, you think of all the grand truths of Christianity that have been revealed to us about the character of God, who God is in His sovereignty and in His love and goodness and power, and about our union with Christ, that we have been united to Jesus Christ by God's grace through faith. And now the work of the Holy Spirit by which we've been sealed for the day of redemption. 
and how Jesus Christ reigns and rules at the right hand of God the Father on behalf of the church. And now he's displaying his wisdom to the principalities and powers through the church. And that you and I have been saved by pure grace through faith. And now God has purposes for us that we be holy and blameless and be fulfilling the good works he has prepared for us. All of these wonderful doctrines that we've seen in this book, they're all part of taking up the belt of truth. And they support us and fortify us in our daily walk with Jesus Christ. Those aren't just abstract thoughts. Those are truths that you and I need this week. We need it this week in the trench warfare, spiritual warfare that every one of us is engaged in, whether we stop to think about it or not. There's no rest from the spiritual warfare the Christian experiences until we see Jesus face to face. James Montgomery Boyce says it this way, it is significant that Paul puts truth first. This suggests that successful spiritual warfare begins with fixing Christianity's great doctrines firmly in our minds. Or to put it another way, it is dangerous to rush into battle without having the great doctrines of the faith firmly fixed in our understanding. Isn't it interesting that Americans tend to be activity-related, you know, doing-related. We want to do things. And the belt of truth is saying to us, stop and first make sure that you are firm in your convictions about the truth of God. Second, it's the breastplate of righteousness. We find this at the second part of verse 14. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness... The breastplate covered the chest and the abdomens, covered what the ancients thought were the seat of the emotions or the affections. And righteousness here is not human righteousness. It's not moral rectitude that we have in and of ourselves. Someone has said, man's integrity is at its best, but as wax before the devil. So it's not our own righteousness, but it's according to Philippians chapter 3, where we're talking Paul talks about a righteousness that is not his own, a righteousness that is from God through Christ. It's the imputed righteousness of Christ that we have by justification through faith, by God's grace. And yes, also as part of that would be then that imparted righteousness, that practical holiness that begins and is the fruit of that imputed righteousness of Christ. And so the breastplate of righteousness gives us a general sense of confidence before God because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. As Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength, the confidence that arises from the knowledge that we are children of God. That's the breastplate. Satan's strategy is to make us rely overly on our feelings, our emotions, our experiences. It's true that emotion is part of Christian life and experience, and and we should be having experiences of growing in the knowledge of God and experience of the joy of the Lord, but we cannot rely on these. They vary. They go up and down. The only foundation that can be laid is Jesus Christ, 
And so especially in times of spiritual conflict or in spiritual discouragement, when your spiritual life feels very dry and cold, or maybe everything spiritually seems to be at a standstill for you, that could be due to spiritual issues. It could be due to physical issues. Often that accompanies sickness and illness and things like that. Or it can be because of suffering and trials and tribulations you're going through. Especially at times like that, we must put on the breastplate of righteousness. Even though you may not know what's happening exactly spiritually in your life, to stand in the righteousness that is ours through Jesus Christ alone. What are some particular examples of satanic attacks and how we need to put on the breastplate? I just think of a few here. One is when we try to pray and Satan somehow suggests that we are in no condition to pray. Of course, you don't know for sure whether these thoughts are coming from Satan or just from yourself, or sometimes you might think they'd be from God. And Satan reminds us of our unworthiness and our sinfulness and brings up some past sins in our mind or even brings before us the greatness and the glory of God and, and, and says to us, how would you dare to pray to such a God? And our response is that we might agree, but we say, yes, but I take on the breastplate of righteousness. I stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by grace through faith, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We will be never, never be good enough to enter the presence of God in and of ourselves. We know that. It's only through Jesus Christ that we come. But we come boldly with a sense of sonship because of what he has done. Another time is when we fall into sin and Satan whispers in our ear, you have sinned against the light. You cannot even plead ignorance. You know what the will of God is. There's no hope for you now. You forfeited the love of God and maybe were cast down in some way. But we should think of verses like 1 John 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's saying we can't just ignore righteousness and act like God doesn't care about whether we sin or not. If we have fellowship with him, but just disregard the will of God, that's not right. But then verse 7 goes on to say, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's the breastplate, the righteousness that we have in Christ. Satan can bring Christians into bondage and into despair and into a sense of utter hopelessness, a sense of desertion by God because we too easily listened to his insinuations on this point. But God is faithful and just. He is faithful to his own word of promise, and we stand in the righteousness of Christ. And understanding this righteousness does not lead us to sin, but it keeps us from sin. It is when we know the love of God to us and when we love him as we ought that sin becomes most hateful to us until we take up the breastplate. And third, we find the preparation of the gospel of peace. The next part, verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. 
Now, some interpreters interpret this phrase as referring to our readiness to present the gospel to those around us. And certainly, Scripture elsewhere teaches this. And it's important that we be ready, as 1 Peter 3.15, that we're always prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But most do not believe that's the sense of it here. Instead, I would understand this as the idea of a genitive of source, the, ver- the word of a readiness that given by the gospel of peace. Charles Hodge says it this way, your feet shod with the alacrity which the gospel of peace gives. So as the gospel secures our peace with God and gives the assurance of his favor and his love, it produces that joyful readiness, that alacrity of mind, which is essential to success in the spiritual battle. The pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones notes that this interpretation is much more in accord with the context, which is spiritual warfare. And according to this interpretation, then the verse is telling us to prepare ourselves for this warfare by having a readiness, an alertness that comes from standing on the gospel. In other words, we haven't moved off of the foundation of the gospel, and so we're ready, we're prepared, we're ready because we're on the gospel. The readiness is compared to footwear as shoes. In ancient warfare, it was important that the soldier have good sandals on, strong, thick, heavy sandals that would give him a firm footing in the battle. And that would also prevent his feet from being pierced by various traps or anything sharp. And now we have all kinds of shoes Maybe some of you like your running shoes or your hiking shoes or Patty knows I love to get hiking boots and always look out for really good hiking boots that are going to be good. And um, they have a good feeling when you put on new shoes. Now, maybe guys have different kinds of new shoes than girls like, you know. But, but the point of it is um, you're, you feel well prepared, especially if you're in any kind of athletic activity when you have on the right shoes, And so the source of this readiness in the Christian's warfare is the gospel. Stand on the gospel. Be prepared by standing on the gospel day by day. The fourth piece of armor is the shield of faith. Verse 16, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Here, Satan's flaming arrows are symbolic of the fierce onslaughts that the evil one brings. Charles Hodges says about this, It is a common experience of the people of God that at times horrible thoughts, unholy thoughts, blasphemous, skeptical, malignant, crowd upon the mind, which cannot be accounted for on any ordinary law of mental action and which cannot be dislodged. They stick like burning arrows and fill the soul with agony. They can be quenched only by faith, by calling on Christ for help. What are some of the examples of the flaming arrows of Satan? Well, one area is in our thought life. Maybe when we try to read the Bible or pray, and we just find that our thoughts are distracted. This can be because of Satan's 
onslaught. Or maybe some unexpected doubts that come into your mind. Or wrong imaginations. Wrong desires. Or anxious imaginations. Thinking about tomorrow and thinking about everything that can go wrong. Or maybe it has to do with covetousness and greed. We think of Christ being taken by Satan and showed all the kingdoms of this world in an instant. Certainly that's the wrong kind of thinking that Satan and his fiery flaming arrows shoots into our mind. Or maybe it's the thought of pride. We think of David by being moved by Satan to number Israel, to take a census of Israel, which certainly had to do with his pride, and it was a cause for him to fall in that case. Sometimes the thoughts are aimed to persuade the Christian that he has never been a Christian at all, that your whole Christian life is a lie. Or maybe Satan's flaming arrows have to do with fiery trials. 1 Peter 4, 12 talks about it. He says, Do not be, friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. And it's interesting, the word there in the Greek, painful trials, is the same root as flaming arrows, fiery trials. And so it could be some experience, some circumstance you're going through. And yes, all circumstances we believe are ordained and sovereignly overruled by God, but certainly often in them, Satan aims to tempt us and to destroy our faith. We think of Job. Think of what he went through when he lost his herds and his sons and daughters and his health, and he was beset with all these painful sores and sitting on the ash heap. That was a fiery trial. No wonder, Peter says, do not be surprised. That doesn't mean that you know when the fiery arrows are going to come, but he's saying do not be shaken by such an attack if trouble If awful circumstances come into your life, don't be shaken as though somehow the truths of the Bible are false. We could think of modern equivalent to flaming arrow. We might think of it as some kind of uh, missiles coming into our, our life. And maybe if Paul were alive today writing this, he would talk about anti air defense or, you know, a Star Wars defense system of shooting all the missiles down of the evil one. But the idea here is that when those fiery arrows come, we fight them with the shield of faith. Well, what does it mean to use the shield of faith to quench these arrows? How do we take the shield of faith? It's interesting that the Roman shield, one type of shield was a small round one used in combat, and another one was a long, oblong one that was about four feet by two and a half feet, and it covered the entire body. So it was a a terrifying thing, and the archers couldn't shoot through that shield wall. And so faith does not equal, or in this sense, the body of Christian truth as we saw with the belt of truth. It's not the faith as in Christian doctrine, but here faith is active trust. Take up the shield of faith, the shield of actively trusting. It's more than intellectual belief here. It's the quick application of what we believe as an answer to whatever the devil hurls at us. 
Boyce describes it this way, a faith that God can be trusted. Another commentator says, it means looking to Christ and earnestly invoking his interposition on our behalf. Calvin links it with the sword, which is the word of God, and using the word of God. How does faith act as our shield? Think about that. When we have Satan's fiery arrows coming at us, how does faith act as our shield? Faith acts as our shield, and it points us to the object of faith, Jesus Christ. It's never something that's strong in and of itself. We don't have faith in faith, but faith points to Jesus Christ. It points to the promises of God's Word. And we know God is always true to His Word. And when we hold up the shield of faith, we are actively depending upon God and His grace in Jesus Christ, and we're actively calling upon Him for the next minute, for the next hour, for the next day. We're saying, my trust is in You. Help me, O Lord. And especially when we are hard-pressed and we are feeling completely weak. We are actively exercising faith in Jesus Christ. It's like the great hymn says, I need thee every hour. Or another hymn says, I need thy presence every passing hour. What but thy grace can foil the tempter's power? That's what the shield of faith does. And so you might ask yourself, what kind of spiritual attack are you experiencing or do you think you might experience this week? Unbelieving thoughts, empty and useless imaginations. Take the shield of faith. It doesn't mean that you feel strong or that you think you are strong, but taking the shield of faith lays an axe to our pride and self-sufficiency and says, my hope is in Jesus Christ. I do not rely on myself. I fix my faith on Jesus Christ. What an important part of the armor of God. Fifth, there's the helmet of salvation we find referred to. And take the helmet of salvation, a brief allusion to that. The helmet, of course, protects the head. There's leather in the Roman army with metal attached to it. First Thessalonians 5 speaks about the hope of salvation, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. The meaning here is the hope of salvation is our awareness of the fact that we are Christians. We are in Christ. We enjoy the salvation of God, but it's a forward-looking hope. It's a future-looking awareness in the hope of glory. Hope in the sense of strong certainty, strong assurance. We know that Christians have been saved by grace through faith. We are being saved as God sanctifies us and continues his good work But finally, one day, we will be saved. We will be glorified. The helmet of salvation looks to the third type of that word, saved. We will finally and fully be saved. And so in 1 John 3, John says, Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he, Jesus Christ, is pure. So, think of the helmet of salvation in this sense. The helmet enables us to continue in the battle until the end. And here we're looking at the warfare as a whole. And you might think of it this way. There are times throughout our Christian life and experience when we're tempted to give up. If you've ever run in a marathon, then I'm sure that you know by the time you're at mile 15 or mile 23, uh, 
you're thinking, okay, I just can't go on. But you have the finish in mind. You have the goal in mind, and you press on. The hope of salvation is like that. The helmet is like that. We're animated by that. It enables us to wait patiently and continue to press on through trials, in the midst of service, through various temptations. It's interesting that Galatians 6, chapter 6, verse 9 says, Let us not become weary in doing good. And what motivation does it give for that? For at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Really, it's looking to our final seeing Jesus Christ, when we will be, be rewarded and we will see him and, and all that we have labored for will be evident. And so the goal is to keep that final conclusion in mind. Like Paul says in Philippians 3, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which Jesus Christ has called me heavenward. That is the helmet. And finally, we come to the sword of the Spirit. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Of course, you might notice that this is the only offensive piece of armor listed here. The Word of God, used in the power of the Spirit, is at the very heart of resisting Satan and his devices. When we think of Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. In Matthew 4, for example, every time Satan attacked, Jesus responded with, it is written. It was this masterful use of the sword of the Spirit which apparently forced the devil to finally leave him until an opportune time. And we just think about that. If Jesus needed to know the Word of God and to use the written Word of God, how much more do we need to use that as well? in our spiritual warfare. There's no doubt that the Word of God here is referring to the Bible, the written Word of God, the particular words of Scripture itself. We need to bring those to mind. Why is it called the sword of the Spirit here? It's because it's given by the Spirit. It's produced by the Spirit. The Word of God is given by the Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Spirit is God-breathed. And so the Spirit was active in producing the Word of God, and also the Holy Spirit enables the Christian. It enables the Holy Spirit. He enables you and me to rightly understand and interpret and use and apply the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is active. I like to look at it this way. The Word of God is like the raw material that the Holy Spirit takes and works in our hearts and lives. Or we could say the written Word of God is the arsenal that the Holy Spirit uses of His weapons to apply as He works in our lives. And the Holy Spirit very personally and very really will apply the Word of God to your life as you meditate on it, as you think of it. That's what it means to take up the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God used in the power of the Spirit is at the heart of resisting Satan. And so the Spirit of God and the Word of God go hand in hand, and we must not separate the two. It's interesting that when Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit, he was filled with the Spirit. He was full of the Spirit, we're told. 
And then he resisted with the word of God. And if you separate the word and the spirit at all, you will go to one of two extremes. If you emphasize too much the spirit only, then you will tend to live by impulses and vague impressions of the spirit. That's where the whole word Quakers came from because they did not emphasize the written word of God. They emphasized experience. That's one extreme. The other extreme is the word only without the life-giving working of the spirit. And that leads to cold and lifeless knowledge, more academic knowledge of the word of God, divorced from the power of the spirit. So we must have both the word and the spirit. How can we effectively use the word of God, the sword of the spirit? I would just say these brief things. One, be convinced of the authority and power of God's word. You must be convinced of the authority and the power of God's word. Be humbled before the word of God. Be convinced of its power. A large portion of the church of our day does not believe in the authority and power of the written word of God. Secondly, be thoroughly grounded in Scripture. It's interesting that William Tyndale wanted to translate the Bible into English. He wanted every plowman, he says, to be able to read it because he knew that that was the only way to keep people from the superstitions of the church of that day. He wanted people to understand rightly the Word of God. And so it is. We must be thoroughly grounded in Scriptures. And finally, learn to quote the exact words of Scripture. Do you know how much more powerful it is when you're seeking to stand by faith and take up the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit to actually quote Bible words rather than to say to yourself, well, the Bible teaches me somewhere that God loves me and takes care of me. That's true. How much more effective to say, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You're taking up the very words of God. And so we need to seek to get God's word into our hearts and minds, to memorize it, to work at reviewing Scripture in our minds, to use the word of the Spirit, and then finally to be actively dependent on the Holy Spirit. Using the sword of the Spirit is not a magical thing or a merely mechanical thing. It must be done in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. And so we take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There was a controversy the other year about Davy Crockett at the Alamo. And the controversy was about whether uh, Davy Crockett really did die swinging his long rifle or not. Texans were especially up in arms about this all. Um, But the legend, of course, comes from Davy Crockett's famous ability to use his long rifle expertly. It was said that with a rifle, he could shoot a flea off a dog's back at 100 paces. That's pretty much of an exaggeration, I think. And, of course, when he was out of bullets, he would swing his rifle with the butt end being used like a baseball bat. And that's how some argued he finally went down swinging at the Alamo. Well, history is shrouded in mystery. We'll probably never know that. But I bring up Davy Crockett to you as we close to remind you, Davy Crockett was well acquainted with his weapon, with his armor, we might say. 
Christian, you and I are to be well acquainted with the weapons of our warfare as well. Let's seek to do that in the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the armor. We know that ultimately it all leads to Jesus Christ, and we thank you that we stand in him. Grant us grace this week to be strong in the Lord as we wrestle with temptations, trials, suffering, hardship, and with our own sinfulness that so easily besets us. We long for that day, that hope that we will see Jesus face to face and help us in the meantime to fight the good fight of faith, to take up the whole armor of God, to look to you, to be strong in the Lord, and so to bring you much glory. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.